Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Look what happened, verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. The high priest rose up. Seeing the church growing, the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. In many parts of the world, Christians are openly persecuted for their faith. But what about countries like the United States, countries that were built on Christian principles and values? Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress shares that the persecution of Christians is subtly and steadily growing, just as it did in the first century. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Have you ever wondered why God left His children on earth to languish and suffer? I mean, if God truly loves us, and I believe, of course, that He does, then why wouldn't He snatch up His followers and take them to heaven the very moment they place their faith in Him? Well, clearly, God devised a much different plan. He's given us a clear-cut purpose in life, and it's not earning a paycheck or finding our passion in life. God left His children on earth for the sole purpose of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. That's our purpose. And here's the thing. In today's world, anyone who's devoted to sharing the gospel is going to be persecuted. If you stand up for the sanctity of human life, if you hold to the truth that God created two genders, male and female, then get ready, because trouble is coming into your life. Our teaching series this month is called Unstoppable Power. It's designed to equip you for the contentious times in which we live. In this series, based on the book of Acts, we're recalling the jaw-dropping stories of first-century Christians who dealt with persecution. Under intense pressure, they learned to unleash the power of God's Holy Spirit, and they saw supernatural results. As a parallel to this teaching series, we've activated the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. Friends of Pathway to Victory have set aside $500,000 of their own resources to inspire the generous gifts from friends like you. So, right now, your generous gift of any amount will be automatically doubled in size because of this extraordinary matching challenge. Later on, I'll explain how to leverage your gift for this purpose. But right now, I'm excited to get to our next message in this series from the Book of Acts. Today's study is titled, Church in the Kettle. Back in 1990, Christian pollster George Barna wrote a best-selling book entitled, The Frog in the Kettle. And he was warning organizations, including churches, to be aware of subtle changes in the culture. And he used this famous analogy. If you take a live frog and place it in a kettle filled with boiling water, the frog will immediately jump out to save itself. But if you take that same frog and put it in a kettle of tepid water and just gradually raise the temperature, the frog won't realize what's happening around it until it's too late. That's true for every organization. It's certainly true for the church when it comes 
to persecution. As we're going to see today, persecution against the church doesn't come immediately. It comes gradually, incrementally. But it's important that we be aware of the environment in which we exist. That's the theme of the passage we're going to look at today. Turn to Acts chapter 5 as we discover what happens when the church is in the kettle. Acts chapter 5. Now, remember where we are in this study of Acts. Peter and John have gone up to the temple area in Acts 4 to heal in the name of Jesus and to preach in the name of Jesus. And the religious authorities were irate about that. They arrested them, tried to intimidate them, but they wouldn't back down. And finally, they let uh, Peter and John go. And the result was the church was filled with boldness and courage to preach the message of Jesus Christ. And then we get to chapter 5, and there's a seemingly unrelated story there about this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They were members of the Jerusalem church, by all indications, saved and baptized in the church. They made a pledge that they were going to sell a piece of property and give all the proceeds to the church. But you remember what happened. They kept back a portion of the proceeds. The problem was not that they kept it back, but that they told everybody they were giving it all to the church. And when Peter confronted them about their sin of lying, not just to other people in the church, but in essence, lying to God, God struck them dead right there on the spot. And when the whole church saw it, the Bible says they were filled with great fear. I imagine so. Just imagine seeing a couple letter out of your church in the most dramatic way possible. I mean, they were dead on the spot, and I imagine it was a motivation for the rest of the members of the church to clean up their own act, seeing how seriously God takes sin. But this is not an unrelated story. This is a story about the purification of the church. Before God can use any of us individually or together as a church, he needs to purify us, remove sin from our life. Now, we'll never be perfect but we can be pure. You know, in biblical times, if a craftsman wanted to fashion a piece of gold jewelry, he would use a process that is still in effect today called the Miller's process, by which gold is heated up until it uh, reaches a molten state. And in that molten state, the impurities in the gold rise to the top, the craftsman scrapes it off the top, and then the gold can be fashioned into a piece of jewelry. Now, the Miller process can only achieve the highest element of purity is 99.5%. It's not perfect, but it's pure. That's what God is doing in your life and my life right now. In fact, it's that same imagery that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Look at this. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Trials come into our life, various trials. That word various, poikolos, means various. It's the word we get polka dot from. Uh, trials come in different shapes and different sizes into our life. Sometimes the trials we face are a result of God's discipline when we sin. That can be a trial. 
Sometimes it's adverse circumstances like illness or financial problems. Sometimes it's persecution. But regardless of the shape, size, or even source of our trial, God uses it, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus Christ. See that? He's using that gold imagery. That's what God is doing in your life right now. He's doing in the life of this church. He's allowing various trials to come into our life, not to destroy us, but to strengthen us so that we can be used by God. And now that the church was refined, now they were ready to receive two important things. First of all, they were ready to receive blessings from within the church. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all of one accord in Solomon's portico. That was a part of the temple area. The apostles were doing great things. Remember, these signs weren't for the sake of doing miracles. They were a way to authenticate the message of the apostles, that it really was God's message about Jesus Christ. There was a unity of spirit, and not only that, verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Here's one interesting study in the book of Acts, the number of times the word numbers is used. Have you ever heard, oh, God doesn't care about numbers? Of course he does. Numbers represent people. And one sign of God's blessing is that he causes something to grow. That doesn't mean everything that's big is of God and everything that's small is not of God, but it means healthy things tend to grow. Uh, If you have a little baby, if that baby doesn't grow, something's wrong with it, right? It's supposed to grow. God meant for the church, an organism, a spiritual organism to grow. It's only natural that if a church is being blessed by God, it's going to be witnessing and winning people to faith in Christ. The church is going to grow. That's what happened to the early church. In fact, verse 15 says, to such an extent that even they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. What in the world is that about? Now, there's no evidence that anybody was ever healed by Peter's shadow. The point is, all of the unbelievers saw what was happening in the church, that people were being healed. They wanted to have a part of it, so they brought their sick even to be touched by Peter's shadow. What they really needed was spiritual healing. And so God used these miracles to attract them to hear the gospel that would transform their lives. And many of them were being saved. The church was experiencing unusual blessings. But remember this, whenever and wherever God is working, Satan is also working. He hates for the church to grow, not just numerically, but in its influence for the gospel, and he will do everything he can to stop it. And that's the second thing that being refined and purified allowed the church to receive and endure, and that was persecution from without the church. Look what happened, verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. The high priest rose up, seeing the church growing, the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. 
Why were they so enraged by what the apostles were doing? Three reasons. First of all, they were jealous of the apostles' popularity. They couldn't stand to see the apostles getting this attention. It was just sheer, sheer jealousy. Secondly, they were offended by the teaching of the apostles. Remember, the Sadducees were the ruling elite. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in angels. They certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. And they were offended by the apostles' belief in angels and certainly by their preaching that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And thirdly, they were fearful of losing their power. The Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, were afraid that the teaching of the apostles about the resurrection would cause an internal dispute in Judaism and would cause them to have to relinquish their authority to Rome. For all of these reasons, they decided to try to silence the early church by jailing the apostles. Now, what happened? Look at this in verse 19. The apostles were in jail, but it says, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. To me, that's so funny. Angels, which the Sadducees didn't believe in, <laughs> or freed the people that the Sadducees had put into jail and took them out of the jail. Now, this is the first of three times we see the apostles miraculously released from jail. Here, Acts chapter 12, when Peter had a similar experience, and then Acts 16, when uh, Paul and Silas were in the jail in Philippi and were released. The angel released them and said, verse 20, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. We underline the word life. Did you know that's what Christianity is about? It's not about some cold set of facts or cold doctrine that is unrelated to our existence. Christianity is about a life. It's about a way of life that is completely different than anything we can experience apart from Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the what? Life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have what? Life and have it more abundantly. That was the message of the gospel, the whole message of this life. Go stand in the temple, the angel said, where everybody can hear you and preach about this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, watch what happens next, beginning in verse 21. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the Sanhedrin together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for the apostles to be brought to them. Go get those apostles we arrested earlier. But the officers who came did not find the apostles in prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards were standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Do you remember that game we used to play as children where you'd take your fingers and intertwine them with one another and you'd say, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, here are the people? Well, the Jews had their own version of that. They said, here's the jail, here are the guards, open the jail cell, and where are the apostles? <laughs> they had vanished. They couldn't believe what they saw. And now verse 25 while these leaders were still scratching their heads trying to figure out where in the world those apostles had gone, a man comes running into the room breathlessly and saying, hey, you know those apostles you were looking for? 
They're out in front of the temple preaching the word of God. Can't you see those Sadducees going, ay, 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 ay. They're out. Go arrest them again and bring them here. And so they bring the apostles again to the Sanhedrin and say, we told you to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And now what are you doing? Quote, you have filled all of Jerusalem with this teaching. Isn't that a great compliment by a group of infidels? You have filled the whole city with the teaching about Jesus. That is my prayer that the same thing can be said about First Baptist Dallas. We have filled the whole city of Dallas with the teaching of God's word. We have filled the world with the teaching of God's word. There's no greater compliment for any church than that. And so they tell Peter, they threaten him, you've got to quit doing this. Did Peter call a prayer meeting with the apostles? Oh, what should we do about this? No, he didn't have to think twice. Acts 5, 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, I'm gonna say something here that's not gonna be very popular with some of you and some of you watching, but that's okay. I'm not paid to be popular. I'm here to tell you what God's word says. The Bible says that our relationship to government ought to be one of obedience. That's what Paul said in Romans 13. He said, let every one of you be subject to the governing authorities. For every governing authority is established by God. And he who resists governing authorities resists God himself. Now, that's an amazing statement that Paul wrote in Romans 13, to say that every governing authority has been established by God. It's amazing when you realize who the emperor of Rome was when Paul wrote those words, Nero, the most evil emperor in history, the one who used Christians as human torches to light up his gardens at night. And yet, Paul was saying, A, Nero wouldn't be there if God hadn't put him there. He was established by God. And not only that, we're to obey what Nero tells us to do. Christians through the ages have always been known for being good citizens. And so the default position for a Christian ought to be to obey what the government tells us to do, with one exception. And here's the exception. Whenever government asks us to do something that violates not our political views, not our personal preferences, but whenever government asks us to do something that violates the commands from God's word, we are to say no to government and yes to God. And that's what this principle is here. We must obey God rather than men. But Peter didn't let it rest there. He went on. He doubled down. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and as savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And what was the response of those Jewish leaders? Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill the apostles. What a contrast to earlier in Acts 2 when Peter 
preached at Pentecost. And remember the Bible says, and the people who heard him were pierced through the heart with the message. And they cried out, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you shall be saved. And they repented. Here, instead of asking, what would God have us do? These leaders says, this is what we are going to do. We're going to murder the messengers. We're going to silence the message. They hardened themselves against God's word and would have uh, annihilated the apostles right there had it not been for a man who stands up named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of two most respected rabbis in this time. In fact, one of his disciples was a young Jewish zealot named Saul of Tarsus, whom we'll meet in a couple of chapters But Gamaliel was highly respected, and as the leaders were about to kill the apostles, Gamaliel stood up and said, wait just a minute. Before you overreact and you make a bad situation even worse, let's get some perspective here. This isn't such a big deal. Somebody claiming that somebody else is the Messiah. Remember Theodos? Theodos? Claimed to be the Messiah. He gained about 400 followers, Gamaliel said, but he ended up being executed himself. Nothing happened. And then in verse 38, Acts 5, Gamaliel says, so in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Isn't that an interesting perspective from an unbeliever? If it's not of God, it will fail. If it is of God, there's not one thing you're gonna do to stop it. How did they respond to that piece of advice? Look at verse 40. And so the leaders took Gamaliel's advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. Flogging was a light beating. They gave them a light beating. They gave them the perfunctory, don't ever do this again, and sent them on their way. And how did the apostles respond? Look at verse 41. So they went about on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. As much as the unbelievers threatened them, tried to silence them, extinguish their message, they were unsuccessful. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The point of this teaching series is to inspire you to become bold and courageous in whatever role God has given you. You too can have unstoppable power as you begin to emulate the first century followers of Jesus Christ. We have so many pressing issues on our churches today, but these culture wars are unwinnable unless we get to the core of the problem. Our world needs the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit. In my book, I explain how first-century believers learn to unleash the Spirit's power and to accomplish His plan in ways only God could do. I want to send you a copy of Unstoppable Power. 
It's my thank you gift to you when you make the simple gesture of giving toward the wonderful matching challenge that's active right now. It's possible that you've never given a gift to Pathway to Victory. Perhaps it's been a very long time since you've reached out to us. Well, the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge is the perfect time to give because every dollar you're able to give between now and July 4th will be multiplied by two because of this special arrangement. When we complete the Matching Challenge, we're hoping to amass an arsenal of resources that will allow us to blanket our country and even the world with this hopeful message of spiritual conquest. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. Thanks for doing your part in advancing the case of Pathway to Victory. Together we are piercing the darkness with the light of God's Word. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. Today, when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, you're invited to request a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Jeffress called Unstoppable Power. Call us toll-free at 866-999-2965 or visit our website, ptv.org. And when you give $100 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the Unstoppable Power teaching series, along with a helpful study guide. And don't forget, because of our Unstoppable Power matching challenge, your gift of Pathway to Victory will be matched and therefore doubled in impact. So be sure to get in touch with us right away. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go online to ptv.org. You can also send your donation by mail. Write to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us for Part 2 of the message, Church in the Kettle. That's coming up Wednesday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.